sex trafficking has become a national and international epidemic. This is Randy Osborne. Worldview Truth. I have some statistics from a Polaris project which are staggering on sex trafficking. The United States is number one in the world for sex trafficking. More than 500,000 children a year go missing in the U.S. alone. And then more than 50% of the victims are between the ages of 15, or actually 12 and 15. Another number is there's 25% of child pornography is created by a neighbor or a family member. And then over half a million online sexual predators are active every day. A half a million predators are active online every day. Over 80% of child sex crimes begin on social media. And then as of 2021, there are over 252,000 websites containing images or videos of children sexually abused. 27% of human trafficking victims are children. And human trafficking is a $150 billion a year criminal enterprise business worldwide. Today in the studio, we have Catherine Robbins with us today. And Catherine, I just want you to really just kind of start with your, your story because, you know, I would consider you an expert in this issue. And um, I, I just want you, you just kind of give your story of really what, um, what, what your experiences were as, as growing up and, and really how significant is the 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 sex trafficking in the United States and what we can do to fix it. But that's long term. I just want to back up and start initially. What is your story? Um, and just go ahead and start with that. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I was not raised by my parents. So I say that but I was raised by people who are almost all dead now. <laughs> and they were part of a multi-generational ring of criminals, basically. So it wasn't that I was domestically trafficked just out of mm. my home, and that's really the term for it. If you're trafficked out of your family, your family home, your custodial home, right. it's termed domestic trafficking. And there's a lot more of it than people realize happening in the United States. We see posters with a lot of runaways, and that's a significant issue. There is a lot of domestic trafficking. So I would have been a domestically trafficked young person. Uh, the People who raised me, again, they were part of multi-generation. So as far back as I know, I would have been considered third generation in this family. I don't have anything beyond that. So they may have been doing it before right. uh, my grandparents' generation or that hypothetically, the custodial people, it would have been in that generation. And they started trafficking me from the time I was in diapers and I have no memory of that, of course. It would be crazy to say I remember being a year old and being trafficked. But I know from the amount of therapy I've done and from what I do remember later on that it started very, very, very young. And they were trafficking children, 
child pornography before the internet, um, weapons and drugs around the world. Wow. Now, when you say domestically trafficked as such, um, a lot of, uh, I'm not, I'm going to say a lot, but there are people that would say, well, how could that, how could that, how could that come to pass from a, from family members is what you're kind of referring to is, is it family members or is it just people that were raising you that would be considered family members? Yeah. So they would have been like family members because they had custody of me. Right. Um, and it happens for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it happens because the finances involved in selling your children or trafficking them, yourself, I I say selling, meaning selling them to a trafficker or trafficking them yourself, um, brings in finances. Uh, a lot of times it's done through coercion, but in my case, when you're talking about, I, I don't, I don't think there are sufficient terms, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are great terms to describe a lot of things that have to do with child abuse and human trafficking. So when we hear terms like deep state pedophilia, elite pedophilia, I think it really refers to a more organized criminal element than say a local trafficker or John who has three or four victims that he sells or a gang member that has eight or 10, right? So I would have been brought up in multi-generational organized crime trafficking. Right. Let me ask you another question um, down that line. When, when you were trafficked at a very young age, was it, was it just at a local level or was it, was this done at more of a international level? I, I don't like to, I don't like to say things that I don't actually remember. Gotcha. My suspicion based on what this organized uh, group of people were doing is that it was an international. I do know it was all over the United States for certain, but after doing many, many years of healing work, I've never needed to know every single memory in order to get whole. That's kind of a mistake, actually, um, that some people make. So in not knowing everything, I can't say for certain that it was international. But based on the activity of this organization and the people who raised me, the likelihood is that it was international. Another question is, how, how does somebody get out, especially when it's domestic trafficking? When it's at a different level, I, I can understand how people um, can get out or how people can get rescued out of that. But on a domestic issue, how can that, how can somebody do that? How, how can that be done? Well, because it obviously happened in your case. I think it's virtually impossible to be honest with you. And I think one of the reasons it's virtually impossible is because like, for instance, in my case, there were people everywhere who knew something was wrong. I I was in churches. I was in schools. I was going to school with welts on my legs that were so large from belt marks and switches. People knew I was being abused at minimum. Was this was this private school, public schools? Public. In public schools. And they knew. 
I would be approached. People knew. But I think in my case, in hindsight, what I didn't know back then, um, I had so many questions around, okay, well, why, why aren't you doing something? Why won't you help me? And in hindsight, I believe it's because people in positions of authority knew that my family was involved in something. And um, they were either frightened into not saying something or, you know, back then people didn't want to get involved in other people's stuff. It wasn't as proactive as our culture is now. Did you ever have child and family services or DCF or somebody of that nature? Did you ever have somebody come to your home and investigate um, or because somebody said, hey, I saw uh, I saw Catherine had she had some. Uh, welts on her and she looks like she may be physically abused or anything like that did you have anybody come in come in and do investigate investigate your home or did they come and talk to you did anybody like that come and talk to you the the police were called to intervene repeatedly and at the age of 15 almost 16 uh, I actually was taken to the police department to ask them to put me in uh, child protective services into a foster care situation. You asked them? Oh, yeah. And they refused. Wow. Okay. Because they said there was no evidence or they... Okay. Um, I don't have all the answers to that. Right. I can tell you how I got out. So there were... Let me back up for just a minute. There was never a time there was never a time that somebody called child and protective services to say, Hey, you need to, something's going on in that home. Not that, not, not that I'm aware of, Okay, but you have to remember my age. Okay. So I'm a lot older and was growing up um, in the late sixties and seventies and CPS wasn't even an official organization until the nineties. So it was different back then. Um, I I think there were social services and programs. Um, The one thing that did happen is there were actually let me backtrack too. Mm. Let me go to how I got out. I don't believe that domestic trafficking victims are likely to get out before they age out of a home. I think it's really, really, really difficult. And I think a lot of that is because of the trauma bond and dissociation that happens in victims that are repeatedly victimized inside their home and from their home. So I think it's, it's difficult. I had a miraculous intervention where somebody in law enforcement went to the business of the people I babysat for. And the law enforcement officer said to to the man that I babysat for, you need to get her out of that home immediately or they're going to kill her. Now, who said that? The police officer. And who did they tell that to? The people I babysat for. Gentlemen I babysat for had a business. And they called me into their home that afternoon um, and said, we want to talk to you, him and his wife. And um, he said, a police officer showed up today and said that we need to get you out of the house or they're going to kill you. He, he said those words. And I remember thinking, 
oh my God, I, I trusted him implicitly. I, I trusted this family, some of the few people I trusted. And so um, he made a plan. I wasn't going to be able to stay with them for varying reasons. And he made a plan and said, go get your stuff, pack your bags. Here's what we're going to do with it. And um, you go do this, 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 and this. And I basically was a runaway the last two years of high school. Were you staying with that family or was that family putting you in places or were you just on the street? I was just on the street. It was a very, very confusing time for me. What, how old were you? I was right around 16 when that happened. Okay. And at that time, one of the things that was confusing is that I grew up in church because traffickers raised their families in churches often. And but the blessing for that was that I came to know the Lord genuinely as a child. And I think that's responsible for saving my life and my sanity in many ways. Through church? Through, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So, so you, you came, let me just ask this question. You mentioned, um, you've alluded to, there's a lot of sex trafficking, stuff like that going on in religious circles yes okay can you expound on that in some way is it a denomination is it a particular denomination or the just the ones that you've experienced or the uh, uh, who's involved in that i think it crosses denominational lines in my case um typically what these traffickers are doing and and these were people who literally worshiped satan I mean, they, they just, they're definitely not worshiping God, right? So, but, but let me ask this. I mean, you know, Sunday morning you go to church and there they are and uh, there they are preaching. I love Jesus. They're not up there saying, I love Satan. I'm sure they're saying, you know, I love Jesus, but behind the scenes, are they, are they financially involved or is it just something that, um, is I guess the question is, is there a financial involvement in the church or is it just a bunch of wicked people in the church? I would say it's all the above. So they're standing in church with their families or they may not stand in church, but they've got their families in there to make them look all pious and to try to throw off the scent. But on fri- Is it pastors? Sure it is. Deacons, elders, it's and and on on Saturday morning between twelve oh one a.m. and five, they're in the basement of the church, ritually abusing children, uh, tra- gang trafficking. You personally, yes, have been involved in that. Yes, church after church after church, and it is the most more than one denomination. Yes, and it is the most difficult part of my story to tell publicly, oftentimes, because that really hits. Christians between the eyes in a way that's hard to stomach. This is a tough question. I've got to ask it. What, how, how could you even see who God is growing up when you're dealing with that? Um, That's a great question and it's got a complicated answer. In these very organized criminal elements, one of the things they do as they're traumatizing children is they make a concerted effort through all kinds of imagery and 
constant what would be like programming narratives over repeated messages. They attempt to get children to believe that God hates them. He has no power. They belong to Satan. And if God cared about them, they would come rescue them from what these people are doing from them. And I'll give you a for instance. Okay. They will, they will put someone in a position. So oftentimes in my, in my situation, there were women oftentimes used and they would be pretty and well-dressed and all of they would be everything that a young child, especially a a young girl would aspire to want or be. And a lot of times these women would be assigned to take these children on spending sprees and buy them new clothes. So they're building trust, right? Mm -hmm. With one of these women, I'll call it a mentor. And the mentor will start having conversations with the child around matters of faith. This is absolutely intentional. And it becomes hard to unravel when someone gets free from these environments and is trying to heal that this religious and spiritual aspect. So this mentor will begin spiritual conversations with a child. And, you know, children are very innocent. I think they're just prone to an, an automatic relationship sure. with the, the Lord. And they'll say things like, you know, what do you think about Jesus and who is he? And, and so the children will start talking. In my case, I, I grew up thinking, you know, he was a savior. And um, that may not have been my language, but I had this inherent knowing that he was good. And so they play on that for a while and they feed into that. Oh, yeah, he's good. They play on that, that God is good for okay. a while, for a while. Yes. And then what they do is they say, when the child gets abused, okay, after the child's abused and they're very vulnerable and something has just happened to them, that person will step in at some time in the first few hours after that abuse or that, that thing that just happened. They could have attempted to hang me, which they did often, try to drown me. That's, all this stuff is very, very common outside of the sexual abuse and the woman or mentor will step in and say did you cry out to Jesus do like Jesus could come rescue you and I would say the first time they do it I would say you know I might be crying and just completely traumatized and say no I didn't well you know if he's real like you say he is all you have to do is cry out to him he loves you he'll come rescue you and then they'll do it again and the next time 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 you cry out and he doesn't show up and the tears honestly they're not for me this is such a wicked spiritual part of what they do that many survivors will come out and be rescued or they will escape and trying to get their life back on track is nearly impossible because of that one spiritual component because of the spiritual depth of evil. And we don't have nonprofits and mentors and churches with the capacity to unwind that because they won't let someone like me or someone else come train them that you have to be able to deal with that. And they're scared to death of religion and Christians and God because of what these people do to them. Um, Let me back up just a minute. And 
obviously there's a lot of manipulation. Oh. There's a lot of brainwashing. And did you did you come to the point where you hated church because of that? Did you hate God and hate church? Um, I had a little bit of a different experience. So from the time I was probably between five and seven, when some things were being done to me that were just brutal, I would hear the audible voice of God as a child, and I haven't heard it since. And I know people might not believe that, but um, I would just have experiences where I would hear him tell me, and I didn't know who he was. I just know I heard something that sounded audible. Maybe it was just in my head or in my spirit, but I would hear him say, you're not one of them and you never will be. And that, that experience kept me sane Hmm. and I believe it kept me alive and it's not everybody's experience and I can't explain why I got it and some don't but that was critical for me when you when you were out on the street um what what 16 is that what you Mm -hmm. said at 16 so for two years you were on the street tell me tell me about that experience what what did you what did you do obviously it was you felt it was a safer place than where you were. So how did you survive that? What did you do? Well, initially, it was very, very confusing, because I went to all of the people in authority that I thought would be able to intervene. So I went to friends, families that I knew he was a pastor, they were part of a church, I went to my church and the leadership, I went to school officials. And I were you in school then? Yes. And that I had a dissociative amnesia. That's what it's called when you don't remember what's happening to you at night. And I knew I was being brutally abused during the day, but I didn't remember all the trafficking. So I had the memory loss, right? The amnesia. So when I'm going to help, I'm going to help because I'm a runaway and I'm being abused during the day. And And most of these people said no. There were times when I would have friends whose parents would take me in for a few nights or a week or sometimes even a few weeks. And after that, they'd put me right back on the street. And that was really confusing for me. As an adult who's been through a lot of healing, I realized that a threat was probably made against their family. They were probably afraid and knew something. There was something that happened that would cause them to put a young person back on the street. And I, I don't blame them now that I'm older, but back then it was very confusing. And then there were two circumstances during that two years where people inside of this criminal organization either tried to adopt me or have me put in a lifelong mental uh, facility. And by the grace of God, both of those attempts failed. And I, I mean, that was miraculous intervention. One was a doctor who was part of the organization. Medical doctor? A medical doctor. And was that one of them that tried to adopt you? Uh, tried to do both. Tried to adopt and then tried to have me um, put into permanent mental health and this whole time this whole time now you were still going um you were still in school yes and and still going to school 
Yes. And one of the things that happened that was really helpful is that I had one particular teacher who was a man. And I know to this day, he knew something was going on. And he just, when I was in his classroom, I was in an engineering class in the afternoon every day for three or four hours. And he just cared about me while I was there. Mm. He didn't take me in. He didn't, he didn't do anything after school. He just cared about me while I was there. And so I felt safe when I was in his class. The other thing that happened is we had a, (laughs) we had a dean of girls in the school that was really considered a pit bull. And she was disliked by most of the females (laughs) in the school. And initially, um, I had negative experiences with her where she would walk down the hallway and try to pull me out of class and tell me, go back home. And she was really hardcore. And did she know that you weren't at, at home? She did know that, and I'll tell you how she knew it, because the people who raised me started calling the police. This is how they were trying to deal with it. They started calling the police and telling the police uh, they would file reports saying that I, at 16, was physically abusing some member of the family or I was prostituting, or I was addicted to drugs. These were their narratives. And the police... Who was saying that now? The people who raised me that I escaped from. So they would call the police and the police would show up at my high school. Two armed police would show up at my high school and pull me out of school and question me every time a report was made. Hmm. It was so embarrassing and, and actually terrifying because there had been law enforcement that I was trafficked to. So I was terrified of people in uniform. You were trafficked to people in law enforcement. Yes. So I was terrified. Well, this happened in the first few times it happened. The dean of girls was confused and she's thinking, you need to go home. This is a problem. But it happened enough times and she had enough private conversations with me in her office that she became a protector and champion for me. And I would not have made it through school without her. So I had a place where I could go. I got two meals a day, right? Um, I at was school. At school. And if I got sick, the dean of girls would take me to the, a local hospital and she would sit with me in the emergency room and, t- and watch guard over me. So I had some help. There were still, I was still being accessed by traffickers, uh, not as often when I was on the street, but I also had a couple people in my life that I felt safe with and environments that I felt relatively safe in, even though some of the trafficking took place at the, the public high school as well. Wow. Was it from other students or somebody came in? No. How did that work? Authority figures and other people that came in. At the, at the school. Teachers? Yes. Administration? Yes. Yes. And uh, a lot of these did, locations, a lot of these locations are infiltrated and used by the traffickers because they want their victims to understand no place is safe and no one is safe. So let me, I'll use this as a for instance. They will, uh, there are cases where um, they will house uniforms. So they will, these traffickers will house anything that makes someone look like a lawyer. They will house a, um, they will keep in a closet somewhere for their usage, uh, law enforcement uniforms, FBI badges, FBI uniforms, and they will gain access to churches and schools and it may not even be known by the administrators, but they will gain access to these locations and use these 
get-ups to let a child know you can't go to a pastor, you can't go to a priest, you can't go to a police, you can't go to the feds, you're not safe in this school, you're not safe in this church. That's the idea. There is nowhere for you to run, and there's no one for you to tell because everybody's unsafe. The the dean of girls that, that really kind of took you under her, her wing, so to speak, did she know what was going on? I don't know that. She was much older, even when I was in high school. I mean, she was probably in her 60s, and uh, I don't know. I lost track of her, and I actually recently tried to find the other teacher and uh, have yet to be able to find him. Did you ever talk to her when she was befriending you about what was happening or what happened well to you? she knew i was being abused the marks were very obvious yes she didn't know you were being sexually abused we don't know i don't know that i yeah. i believe that people were probably suspicious that that was the case but probably didn't yeah. know what to do moving moving forward and you ran away got out you finished school apparently and t- tell me what what turned you around? What turned this whole thing around? I mean, even you told me that even while after you had run away, you were still being trafficked to some level. So how did you completely get away from that? Actually, that was in some case, in some ways, that was a more dangerous time. Because remember, the reason I got away was because somebody on the inside or somebody close to people on the inside knew that they were about to kill me that they had, I had a target on my back. So there were parts of me being a runaway that were very dangerous. And it was less about being trafficked and more about making sure I shut up and understood that my life was in danger. Why do you think that they wanted to kill you? I mean, traffickers, the whole, one of the whole purposes of trafficking is, is they're making money. That's one of the reasons. That's, that's the big one. Tell me why you think that they were trying to kill you. Were, did, did, were people getting too close? What, what was the... I, with organizations like this, especially if they worship Satan as a deity, right? Um, they just have protocols under which they will sacrifice a child of varying ages. So that could be one reason. I don't know if that's mm. the case. My personal opinion is that they know psychology, they know the spiritual makeup of their victims, and I believe they know who is more likely to tell and who they can control. And in my case, because I had heard the audible voice of God, it kept a clarity in me when I was younger where I didn't dissociate a lot and they couldn't control the fact that I knew what they were doing with wrong. So was wrong. If they can convince a victim to remain a victim and not to be proactive or to believe that they somehow deserved it and it's all their fault, right? They're easier to control. But there are some of us that know through the entire time that this is wrong and it's evil and what they're doing is bad and we make a lot of trouble for them we fight them, Um, there's a a downside to that strength as well. And the downside is that they're more likely to want to kill you and they will definitely physically threaten your life more than they will the other victims, way more. So 
<clears throat> tell me how you completely got away from that. How did you get completely away? You finished school and... Went to college. You went to college. Did not finish college. Was, was that happening in college? No. Okay. No. Got away, uh, went to college for a couple years. Um, away to college? Away. Away to, from that area that... Yes. Okay. Yes. So put distance between me and the location and the people. When you ran away, did you run away from that location? No. Okay. I wouldn't have known how to do that. Okay. At all. Um, so it was a journey. What happened when I went to college and got away from the people and the places that were so life-threatening to me is that I began to understand when I was around other people that I had fears that other people did not have. I was terrified of law enforcement. I was terrified of police cars on the street. I was terrified of things like fire. There were things that I was really terrified of that did not make sense to me. Hmm. I thought everybody else is not afraid of this. Why am I afraid of this? So I began to question my own reality. And I thought some, and I felt like there was this darkness that hovered over my heart and mind all the time. And I started searching for what that was. And so with my limited knowledge and my dissociative amnesia, I started going to places like adult children of alcoholics um, because I knew my father, even though I wasn't raised by him, was an alcoholic. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that has something to do with it. Um, so I started looking for any support group, any kind of help that would help me figure it out. And um, a few years later, after I would have graduated college, some memories began to surface. And when they did, it started to make sense to me that something had been missing that I'd been searching for. So I immediately went into counseling. And the way memory retrieval works is the easiest memories come first. The ones that are the most tolerable initially. Your, your brain eases you into the reality. And I happen to be absolutely blessed because the first therapist had worked with survivors like me. And as a matter of fact, she had worked with one who grew up in the county I grew up in. Mm, wow. And she was such a blessing. And she told me months later that when I first came into her office, she knew how gruesome the abuse was because the first memories were so bad. Wow. Wow. Well, let's kind of move on beyond this and about beyond your, your experience. In, um, in the United States, it, there's, there's numbers that there's an estimate, an estimate of um, the United States is the number one customer of sex trafficking. And um, additionally, uh, United States is number three um, in sex trafficking business. And um, that's some statistics. Do you think that those are real numbers? Or do you think that it's more? Do you think it's less? What, what is your perspective on that? The, thank you for asking. Uh, the, the challenge with statistics is we need them and yeah. the public needs them. So we want to tell them 
unfortunately, they differ from one organization, uh, and, and it could be a reporting organization sure. like the DOJ. So they will differ. So a lot of times we will see an accumulation of numbers from varying agencies. I believe that most of that is based on reporting. And reporting, as you know, is um, probably not accurate in terms of the number of victims, whether it's child sexual abuse or trafficking. So uh, I just know that we have more awareness mm. than, and more nonprofits than we've ever had in the history of the world. And the numbers are not decreasing, they're increasing. What's your perspective on a lot of these nonprofits? There's a lot of nonprofits that have, I hate saying it this way, but have kind of jumped on the bandwagon of this of this problem. What, what, what is your perspective on it? What do you think about it? I, I would say that, in my opinion, and this is not, you know, sure. based on something reported, I can't prove this, but my opinion is that probably half of the nonprofits in any of the victim arenas but we'll say trafficking right now. Right. Uh, I think they're either dysfunctional, disingenuous, or corrupt. And I will tell, like I, I spoke last night at a local organization, and when I tell people, here's how you can get involved and do something today, the one thing I tell them is go sit inside a local nonprofit in anti-human trafficking, stop giving your money to the national organizations, not because I'm opposed to them or think they're bad. I want, it's like General Michael Flynn says, local action equals national impact. So go volunteer inside the offices of a no, local nonprofit, find out who the leadership is, find out how they answer the phone, find out if they respect each other when they talk to one another inside the office because these people are working with victims. Find out if they're gonna tell you all the victim stories and show you their pictures. And I said to the group last night, if they do that right there, start showing you pictures and stuff like that and telling the victim stories, you need to walk out of the office and find another organization. So I'm saying that we need to vet, we need to, we need to verify who we're working with. Let me let me ask you why about if they start showing you victims or, or telling you about victims. One of the reasons and, and I I work for nonprofits. I, I um, have a couple foundations that I, I manage. And one of the ways that I raise money is I show the issue. I I have to show the need to to raise money for that foundation. Um and I, I would think that in, in an organization like that, they would have to show the need uh, to be able to raise money to be able to, in turn, to to help those victims. So tell me what your thoughts are about why not to. Well, uh, the additional thing I said was you need to find out if the organization has the victim's permission. Gotcha. To share their okay. story. And there's a couple things things associated with that that are really, really important. Nonprofits notoriously in the United States, like the victim story, um, people want to feel, and I don't, I don't, there's a difference between compassion and pity. 
it's two different spirits. So people want to feel compelled to give money and nonprofits want to compel them to feel something to give money. Correct. And I think we dance a very fine line between compassion and pity. And one of the things that me and other organizations that I highly respect, I took training with one of them last week, one of the things we talk about is the handling of victims and their stories. Mm. And one, we need their permission to show their picture or tell their story. And as public as I am, I don't want people telling details of my story to their buddies. Sure. I want them to ask my permission for it, even though I'm very public with it. It's still a very private part of my life. The second thing is a lot of times nonprofits put people on their posters even with their permission and on their stages, even with the victim's permission, when the victim survivor is not emotionally and mentally healthy enough to handle that. And I had a long discussion last week, again, with another nonprofit about this. That has to change inside our culture. I, if I had my own nonprofit in anti-human trafficking or any victim services, um, they would not be on my poster. They would, their stories would not be told and they would not stand on a stage inside my nonprofit until the therapist that they've been working with for a long extended period of time tells me that they understand the risk of telling their story publicly, physically, emotionally, mentally, and that they're ready. And that's, that's me protecting victims. That's not me trying to control mm. victims. A lot of nonprofits, with all due respect to you, I'm not saying you, a lot of nonprofits actually take victims of prostitution and trafficking and exploit them for their story. So it's just another form of exploitation and prostitution. And victims allow it because they're not healthy enough to sense that that's what's still happening. Sure. I understand. Moving, moving into another era or another area, there's legislation that has to be, has to help fix this issue. Tell me what your, what your perspective of that is. What, what is your thoughts on what we can do to, um, to get legislation passed and what do you think the need is? Um, you, you obviously see very, very closely what the problems are. How can we fix that? I mean, one of the things I picked up on and it, you were talking about, I was this, I think this wasn't even on, on the air, but we were talking about, um, child and family services, DCF or whatever the organization is in, in that, in that particular state. Um, for example, in the state of Florida, I'll give you some examples of this. Um, it is a, it is a law, um, that anybody that, um, any administration, any teacher, um, is required by law to report, um, any suspected abuse. And, um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's called a reporter. Somebody that's a reporter. It's not just a teacher, administrator of a school. It's a pastor. It's clergy. Yes, therapists. Um, th- and this is, this is under state statute currently, okay? Um, and there's many times that in, in the school environment, 
that uh, we will see something of, of a student that, you know, there is a, sus- a suspicion of, of child abuse. And, uh, you know, it's basically anytime we have any suspicion of that, we will report it. Um, and, you know, DCF will come in and do an interview, et cetera. But I also see in, in, in some own personal stories, I've seen where that, that has fell through the cracks. To be honest about it, I've, I've literally watched it. Um, I won't get into detail about it, but there was one situation, one case, that there was, um, there was abuse in the home and it was sexual abuse of, of the, the victim had, had claimed there was sexual abuse and the, the, the victim was under, under 18. And um, the Child Protective Services decided to allow that child to stay in the home. And this is after that child reported to us that case. And we did research and there was definitely evidence of it. It was not just, yeah, I'm not really sure. Because kids get mad at parents. And um, it was even a joke when I was growing up. You know, um, you know, some of our kids, we were maybe 14, 15 years old. You know, we would be in a grocery store and, you know, mom would get on to us or something about what we were doing. And, and, you know, we'd say, don't beat me, mommy, don't beat me. And I mean, it was kind of a joke, you know, and mom says, wait till you get home. You, you have no idea what you just did. But what I'm saying is this, this happens. And, um, I won't, we went to extremes to get that child out of, out of that environment. And, you know, so what, what do you recommend? What do you think that, that some things that could, could be done to help uh, protect children? Because that's where we're talking about. And this, in your case, is domestic situations. Um, and, and the other side of that, that's a whole different story. But in domestic abuse, what, what can we do to, to help protect children? Boy, what a loaded question, right? Yeah. I mean, even your explanation of that case is just so fraught with complications and heartache, right? The ones that we feel like we've, we can't get something done for. Yeah. Um, two-thirds of children inside the foster system are trafficked. Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Is that a, is that a national number? Yes. Okay. Um, wow. Legislatively, around children, I, I would say, let's go all the way back to what you initially started talking about is re- mandated reporters filing reports on child abuse. Well, what are the signs right? I think we need better education in schools, in churches. Hmm. I think we need mandated education. One of the things that I would really like to see in the state of Florida is now we have HB1. We have school choice, right? Where Hmm. money follows a child. Because we have that, we're in a unique position where if we could pass legislation requiring any parent or parents, any custodial person who takes money for a child for their education in the state of Florida, we could require them to go through, let's say, a four-hour course 
in how to spot abuse, whether it's your, you know, I know we're talking to the parents and the custodians, but sometimes it's a custodian who's taking the money to school their child and they didn't actually raise that child. So we could tie education to people taking those funds. We need better education, like I said, inside of churches and schools, because there are nuances, as you know, as an administrator in a school, there are nuances. You have to watch somebody for a while to understand. You know, some people don't realize that the fact that a child in your school doesn't look people in the eye is a key indicator of child abuse. So there's things where we need better training. So that's that's what I would say one of them would be. Okay. So you would tie with school choice, you would tie that money with some type of training for that. And you're not talking about schools and administration. You're talking about parents. Is that right? I'm talking about parents because okay. there's money tied to it. Okay. Um, but I do think that we need schools and administration we need legislation for that the other thing that i would love to see and i believe it would take a lot of years to get stuff like this done is um i believe that the foster care system needs to come out of the federal kitty and be governed by the states and there are a lot of reasons why all that federal money being funded into all kinds of organizations, everything from drug rehab for parents that have lost their children to law enforcement. There's money that drips everywhere inside that system from the federal dollars and it's taken out of the hands of the states. And I believe if we would get it back into the hands of the state, we would see the ability to clean up the foster care system or at least have a more direct involvement. Right. The checks and balances of this, and, and it sounds like because you, your perspective is this is wide, widespread. This is through um, agencies. This is through law enforcement agencies. Some of it is. Um, obviously, not all of it, but but it's it's widespread from from your perspective how can you how can we put checks and balances to protect um or or actually to hold accountable these agencies i mean um obviously from your perspective it's everywhere so one of the my thoughts is how do you how do you get a, a create a per um create some type of legislation that would hold agencies accountable um, for abuse? Well, let me make this one statement. I do believe that there is corruption inside of agencies, all kinds of agencies. I never mean everyone. No, I understand. Correct, right? Totally understand. So I just believe that there can be people inside of schools and churches and law enforcement that can be involved, whether by blackmail or choice, right? Or not even realizing what they're involved in. Uh, in terms of legislation for accountability, that really, that's your wheelhouse. I'm not sure because it looks like a great big spider web. It looks like something that's just got a lot of tentacles to it. And how do we do that? That's a, I'll throw the question back to you. What do you think is the solution to that? 
That's a tough question. It, it is a tough question. I do believe that that's a focus that we probably uh, need to work on. I, I, I do because you can't, it's difficult to clean up. I guess I would look at it as a, a sinking ship. And, and if you have a sinking ship and it's, you know, it's taken on water and you have some of the people that's supposed to be plugging the hole that's putting the holes in the ship, you've got to stop that or the ship is never going to survive. I mean, you can't even get to plugging the holes in the ship if you've got the, the people that's responsible to plug the holes that are putting more holes in the ship. If that makes sense? Yes. I'm, I'm kind of simple when, I come, when it comes to that. So I would say that the first thing you've got to, we have to do is we have to come up with legislation that would hold the people responsible that is supposed to be plugging the holes in the ship that are putting holes in the ship. We're going to have to hold them very, very responsible for that. And um, if it's if it's coming from, you know, agencies, if it's coming from child family services, if it's coming from law enforcement, if it's coming even from uh, parishioners or from from churches, from you know, religious institutions that's supposed to be helping protect children, if it's coming from schools, education, um, every single one of those. I mean, in Florida, here's an example again, in Florida, those reporters are required by law to report. If they don't report, mm -hmm. um, it is a felony. I mean, it's a third degree felony. If you know something about prospective child abuse and you don't report it that's how that's how serious it is so that's the kind of thing that that i'm thinking about well okay we are required to report it and now the reporters are required but how about the people that are receiving that that information what are they doing with it and there has to be an accountability there that they're going to have to be held accountable for the very same thing, if that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, and I would say that there is a breakdown between legislation and follow through criminally. So let's say uh, somebody didn't report on one child, but someone else did. Mm -hmm. And that gets verified. And there is some sort of criminal complaint against someone who abused them. Well, who's going back to the people in that child's sphere, and finding out, did you know, did you know, did you know, and prosecuting them, we have this tremendous breakdown uh, between like right now, we have great legislation that was passed in the state of Florida that if you if you sexually abuse a child under the age of 12, right? Is that how the re legislation reads? Then you're you're liable for to to seek we can seek the death penalty in the state of Florida. Well, there's a long distance between that legislation, which I'm very in favor of and thrilled that we have and actually that coming to fruition against a child sexual abuser. Right, right. And where are that. the breakdowns? Mm. Where, that's what I wanna know. That's what I wanna know from law enforcement. What's the breakdown between legislation? Is it funding? Is it that we don't have enough manpower and funding? Where's the breakdown? Is it in the courts? And the answer is probably there's yeah. a breakdown in a lot of those areas. Yes, I, I think that, um, I think law enforcement, I think um, the, the district attorneys, I think the state attorney's offices, 
um, they have to be on board with this. And, you know, the governor specifically in Florida, um, there has been cases where he has removed um, state attorneys because they, they came out and said, we're not going to enforce this, yeah. fill in the blank. And he's actually suspended them. And, you know, maybe that's the answer, but we can have all these all this legislation, but if we don't have enforcement, uh, enforcement, we've got another problem. And I would agree with that. I think him being as tough as he's been around district attorneys <laughs> and that kind of stuff, I think that we need a lot stiffer punishments. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm 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 not endorsing Oprah Winfrey, but many decades ago when she first became public, one of the things she said in her show was, "When we care about children, we will stop this." And she likened it to, "We need heavy, stiff punishments for." everyone involved in either committing or enabling crimes against children and we don't have it yet yeah yeah i think it's a moral breakdown and um yes there's there's so much legislation can do if if um the morality of people um doesn't change and um from what you have described a lot of it is the problem in the churches and um I believe we're the church, and I, I'm going to get an opportunity in Michigan in a few weeks. I'm going to be uh, on stage with Jim Caviezel and Tim Ballard from Operation Underground Railroad and the Sound of Freedom. And when I get to speak there, I have a it's taking place in a church, and I have I have a pretty strong word for the church. I believe we are responsible for the moral breakdown. I think that it's very easy for us to say, I'm going to pray about that and I'm going to get in my prayer closet. But you know what? You being on the street with runaways, that's a prayer closet. You intervening in somebody being abused in a school is a prayer closet. Like we can't just sit and pray and expect God to be a genie in a bottle that magically appears and goes in and brings an angel to these situations. We're the angels. And I was around all these people as a child. All of these people were around me and did nothing. We have to begin to intervene. And one of the challenges is that you know, we talked about this earlier before recording is that churches don't want to bring people like you and I in to educate about this, to bring awareness, to tell them what to look for and what to do when they see it and how to pray differently around this arena and what's happening. You know, this is a spiritual battle as well. That's right. We need to man up. That's right. You're correct. In closing, is there anything else that you want to share with with the viewers on on what you think that individual families, individual people can do to help stop this epidemic going on? Well, I'll tell you what I told the group I spoke in front of last night, and this is where I'm staying. This is this is what I'm staying with for a while on the heels of the sound of freedom and people being outraged and very upset. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad they are. Go to your local law enforcement, take a citizen police academy. 
immediately. I want you to take a Citizen Police Academy. You need to know how law enforcement functions right now, what they can do, what they can't do, and they will train you how to be the eyes and ears of your community, not just your family, but your community. And it's a very empowering experience. The second thing is, if you're involved with children in any way, either bring your local law enforcement in or go to them and take an internet safety course and take all the children with you. I've done this on two different occasions. It is incredibly impactful and most trafficking is internet, is started on the internet now. Almost, and I mean like 85% of it. So this, you have to become aware of this. And kids need to hear this from law enforcement, not from us, they get sick of us telling that. They need to hear an officer tell them, my kids aren't allowed to have social media. And if they do, what can, you know, if they have it, what can they do? You, you just nailed an issue and um, I'm passionate about that issue. And I'm just, I'm going to get in the face of parents. Um, Every year we do this um, at this school and, and we push this out as far as we can. We will bring in law enforcement um, to have a discussion about social media um, with, with the families, with the parents and I'm telling you right now that as a parent, get your kid off of social media. It is, it is a, um, there are so many problems with it, but the big one is, is that is how they come after kids. We have seen this personally in this school. We've seen this happen. We've seen kids that start getting on, um, getting on these chats start talking to somebody that they don't know, come to find out it's somebody that is a a pedophile. And um, we have even had issues where that they would actually come to their homes from another state, another location. And the parents are absolutely oblivious to it. And it's like, well, they, I mean, everybody's got a smartphone. And I mean, my kid has to have one because, you know, Johnny across the street has one and, um, it, it is a is a major major problem. It's a major problem, and we need to work with our kids. We need to educate our kids. Uh, we need to find out that there is there are guards around. Ha- we need to own the phones that they own. They Absolutely. need to be in our name. We need uh, software that actually tells us when they've loaded and unloaded apps and Absolutely. put guardians on their on their phones. We we have to be more proactive. And I'll give you a statistic. I did not even know this app existed. So there was an app and it's still in existence called kick and so kick would is region specific so let's say in ocala in one region of ocala if every kid who's on kick on that app um all it's 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 based on location so all of the messaging comes from somebody literally sitting in that location that's where they're at location wise and there have been 1100 confirmed cases of, of, of trafficking of an underage person attached to that, just that one that app, app, 1100, and it was taken down for a while and now it's back up. Wow. So a trafficker can be sitting in that region in Ocala and go, hey, who wants to make $500? You know, just sending me a video smile. And, and and I'm telling you, within 24 hours, a kid is being trafficked and they have tracked that app. Wow. And all of them are allowing pedophilia. Meta is horrible about it. They're, you know this yeah. as an administrator. Yeah. We're preaching to the choir yeah. at this point. It's awful. 
It is awful. Catherine Robbins, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for um, what you're doing um, to, number one, make awareness. Um, There are so many people that have no idea what's going on. And um, I am so thankful for what you're doing. And and, uh, keep up the fight. We are going to work on some legislation. And um, we'll keep you posted on that, exactly what that looks like. And uh, we're going to keep fighting this issue. Um, Children are important to our future. And... um, this is a this is an epidemic. It's a plague on our nation, and we have got to do everything we can to stop it. Yeah. Thank you again for what you're doing, and God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The best way to combat human trafficking is to stop it before it happens. The current reality is that every child and individual rescued from the sex trade, others are brought in to take their place. It is a supply and demand issue. Unless demand for sex trafficking is is addressed, no amount of rescue or aftercare will stop this crisis. If there's no sex buyers, there would be no sex trafficking. Increased awareness, penalties, and accountability for those doing the harm and driving the demand for victims are proven successful deterrents that actually shrink the crisis. Strengthening legal and policy frameworks still greatly deter potential traffickers. Stricter laws, increased penalties, and rigorous enforcement can also make sex trafficking a high-risk, low-reward enterprise for those who are considering it. Institutional changes are also crucial. This includes fostering a culture of zero tolerance toward trafficking within organizations and systems, as well as promoting ethical standards across various sectors, demanding that major corporations Uh, such as payment processors, social media platforms, and travel hotspots reject profits from sexual exploitation. This would significantly help to end this problem. Worldview Truth, 